The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Today, as we get to look at one of my favorite chapters, really, in the Bible, and that's 1 Corinthians 15, especially 1 through 3, because it distills the gospel, the, the content of the gospel, like no other place in the Bible, where Paul says, with, by way of definition, this is the gospel, and he defines it in less than a sentence, which is absolutely amazing. It is potent, it is loaded, it is rich. We can't exhaust all that God has invested in this short passage, but we will look at the highlights and the most important argument and theme that Paul's trying to make here in 1 Corinthians 15. So let's go ahead and look at it together. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. And in your bulletin there, uh, you'll see that we are going to cover verses 1 through 11, and I broke it up into three points. We actually almost exhausted the first point last week. It is a unit, a thought that goes together, verses 111. So let me read the first 11 verses. In light of that, Paul transitions to this new topic after leaving spiritual gifts behind, after spending three chapters. Now he's going to talk for 58 verses on the topic of the gospel, and really the heart of the gospel, which is the resurrection, starting with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the implications of the resurrection of those who believe in the gospel of Christ. And in the first 11 verses, Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren or believers at one time, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. And so we have three points of emphasis that Paul is going to make regarding the gospel. He's addressing a very specific problem. I told you last week, you can circle or highlight the problem. What is the issue? Because Corinthians is a book of problems. That's what Paul's doing. That's why he wrote it. It wasn't a, a happy, I miss you, I love you letter. And he did love them, but it was very specific to address problems in their church as a pastor, but more so as an authoritative apostle, even using divine revelation to help this church, this young, immature church that was struggling and had all kinds of problems and 1 Corinthians 15, it's a new kind of problem. I said last week as well, it's a doctrinal problem, a theological issue, as opposed to a lot of these practical issues that he was trying to contend with. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, he articulates the problem in verse 12. It's really simple. He just lays it out. Here's the problem. Here's what I've heard. Here's what's going on. I've got to address this, and I've got to address it with truth. Verse 12, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, 
because that was the gospel that I preached to you. That's the gospel you embraced by which you became a Christian. How do some among you, how is it possible that there are people calling themselves Christian in the Corinthian church? How do some among you say, present tense, this is ongoing, it's reverberating in the church, it's leaking out of the church, got all the way to Paul. How is it that some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That That is unthinkable for a Christian. And so Paul gives us 58 verses why it's unthinkable. And he goes in a very logical order, letting them know if you're a Christian, you say you believe in the gospel, you say you're saved, you're part of Christ's church. If you're a Christian, you have to believe in His resurrection because His resurrection is at the heart of the very gospel that saved you. And if you believe in the resurrection of Christ, then you must believe in the concept of resurrection. And if you believe in the concept of resurrection, there is no way that you can be a Christian denying any kind of a resurrection because there are some in the church, we don't know how many in Corinth, that were denying resurrection, the possibility of resurrection, that bodily resurrection uh, wasn't going to happen, it didn't happen. And we talked about why they believe that last week. And so now we'll look at verses 1 through 11 as Paul uh, continues to construct his argument through the help of the Holy Spirit to address their issue. And so last week we looked at the gospel. And that's really the focus of verses 1 through 11. It is the gospel. And verses 1 and 2, Paul reiterates the conditions of the gospel. He reminds them, you claim, when I came, Acts 18 records this on his missionary journey, when I came into this pagan city of Corinth and when I preached the gospel, many of you responded and you claimed to uh, embrace and believe in the gospel. And you called yourself Christians and followers of Christ and conducted yourselves accordingly and you assimilated with the local church and you called me your pastor and you called me an apostle and you called yourself a saint and you said you loved God and you said you loved Jesus and you worshipped Him. And that was true and even possible only by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I delivered it to you. I gave you the gospel. You welcomed it. You embraced it. You even said that you believed it. And so uh, these are the conditions Paul's reminding them. If you are truly a Christian, you must embrace the gospel. You must hear it. You must understand it. You must submit to it. You must believe it. You must embrace it to be a Christian. And you must believe it with true, legitimate, saving faith before God. And so... Paul reminds us there are conditions to believing the gospel. There are conditions to being a Christian. This is an important reminder for us because, I don't know, every once in a while I hear the unconditional love of God. We have the unconditional love of God. Well, technically, actually, God's love is not unconditional. That might alarm some people. But God's saving love is very specifically conditional. God's saving love is conditioned upon us believing in the gospel. It's conditioned upon the death and resurrection of Christ. It's conditioned upon our repentance of our sin. It's conditioned upon our belief in Jesus Christ and His gospel. So the love of God is conditional. And God has laid down what those conditions are. And Paul does the same thing here. He reminds them there were conditions to the true gospel. And Paul, basically, he's doing a great diagnosis here. He's saying, you know what? We've got a major problem. We have wrong views. We have wrong belief. We have bad theology we have bad theology on a very important issue. This is not a tangential, secondary, or tertiary issue in Christianity. This is priority number one. So I'm going to start with the basics, the gospel. This is the plumb line of what unites us as Christians. That's why he's approaching it this way and reminding them of what the just the most basic rock bed conditions are of being a Christian. It's believing the gospel and embracing it and embracing it the right way and not mixing it with works. It is by faith and faith alone. Those are the conditions. So that was his point of emphasis in verse 1 and 2. And so that's why in the outline I put there, 
two main points of the conditions was the preaching of the gospel that Paul gave them and also true belief, which we talked about last week. We didn't talk about preaching, and I want to mention this before we go on to point number two. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, that's the good news, gospel means good news. Which gospel, Paul? Well, the one that I preached to you, he says in verse 1. All five English translations, uh, major English translations, translate preached uh, the same way as preached. And the word actually comes from gospel, euangelizo, euangelizomai, which is related to uh, the word gospel. It's literally, it's the, the good news that I good newsed to you. And he uses the same word, word in verse 2, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I good newsed to you, which I evangelized to you, which I preached to you. It's the good news. He turns it down into a, a verb like only Paul could do. I good newsed you. By the way, good news, uh, the verb form of good news, good news, is actually used in the Old Testament, the, or translated that way in the Septuagint, Greek Septuagint. Jesus used this word as well as a form of preach. And even in the Greek culture of Paul's day, the verb form pretty much meant one thing. It was a verbal declaration. It was a message given by words. It's not a message that can be given in any other way. It is, it's a message given with propositional verbal decrees and proclamation. In other words, the gospel needs to be verbally articulated. In other words, you don't have the gospel unless it was spoken to you. That is clear. This is really, really important. That's what Paul says over and over again. The gospel that I preached to you. So, in other words, the practical implication for us is in order to give the gospel to somebody or evangelize, and the word evangelize comes from the word gospel, good news, to good news somebody, that's a literal translation of evangelize, to good news somebody, you must preach it. You must evangelize it. You must articulate it. You must verbalize it. You must put it in words. You must um, declare it. It needs to be verbal, propositional truth. It's something they need to hear. What am I getting at? Well, you can't give the gospel without opening your mouth. That's the point. I don't know if you ever heard that old adage that's supposed to be really spiritual from supposedly, I don't know, uh, St. Francis many moons ago that's so utterly profound, we're told, where he said, wherever you go, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Go, oh, that's wow, that's powerful. And he was emphasizing, apparently, your, your good life. Be a good person wherever you go. As a matter of fact, don't use words if you don't have to. Well, the problem is that's not preaching the gospel. Paul makes it clear, even the use of this word. So uh, we have got to speak up and preach the gospel and give verbal truth. As a matter of fact, Paul, uh, Jesus gives the Great Commission in all four chapters at the end of the Gospels. Four times. John 21, Luke 24, Matthew 28, Mark 16. Also in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 and following. Every, that's five times. Every time Jesus gives the great commission to the church, it's not go out and, and do good things. Go out and go, do good deeds. As a matter of fact, he never says that. He says one thing. Go out and preach. That is the word that Jesus used in, in Luke 24. Go out and preach the good news. Proclaim the good news. Give a verbal decree. It is a message from God. That's how you evangelize. That is the only way to evangelize. 
So, we're, But we're not denigrating good works. Good works have to follow. Good works come with it. But good works are not the gospel. Good works aren't the message. As a matter of fact, a lot of people and a lot of Christians get confused and actually pollute and distort the gospel when they say, and this is actually more and more common in evangelical Christianity today, going out and saying, I, I, I need to live the gospel for other people. I need to be the gospel for other people. That's a profound confusion of categories. Uh, you are not the gospel. You aren't good news. I'm not the gospel. You know what I am? I'm bad news. I can't live the gospel for anybody. They need to see Jesus, not me. So we need to be clear. It is an objective message. It came from God. It doesn't originate from us. We are simply stewards of it, caretakers of it. That's what Paul said. What I received, I also delivered. I didn't make it up. It's the same message Peter is preaching and Apollos and all these other guys you say that are better than me in chapter 1 through 3. It's an objective, divine, supernatural revelation from Almighty God. It came from Him. He is the author. No, human is. And the only way it can be known to man is to be proclaimed verbally. You need to speak up. That's why things like saying, well, uh, I got to talk to this unbeliever and I invited him to church. Well, that's good, but that's not evangelism. If you didn't say anything about Jesus or the gospel or their sin, you didn't preach the gospel, you didn't evangelize. If all you did was invite them to church, then all you did was invite them to church, and there's a very likely possibility they, never, well, they won't go to church. And if that's the case, then they've never heard the gospel. It is courageous to invite somebody to church, but I just want to be clear. That's not preaching the gospel. That's not evangelism. That can be a precursor to evangelism. That can complement evangelism. Uh, you can invite somebody to church, which is actually a, a gracious thing to do, a good thing to do, but it always needs to be coupled with proclaiming the content of the gospel if we want to consider it evangelism. I, and I think I've mentioned this before. I'll never forget when I was at, at an evangelistic seminar and it was hosted by 20 people at a local church and 20 people on the panel and we're talking about brainstorming for five hours on evangelism and how to make an evangelistic impact in the world and in our culture. And the emphasis was on inviting people to church, inviting people to church and we invite them to church that's evangelism and two or three of us were saying well just inviting somebody to church isn't evangelism we're told well yeah it is well no you have to give the gospel now if they go to church that's great and if they hear the gospel at church even better that's evangelism so uh, paul is emphatic here as a matter of fact romans 10 is clear starting at verse 9 confess with your mouth jesus is lord and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead if you do that and you do it sincerely with full knowledge you shall be saved that is a promise from Almighty God. This morning, if you're not a Christian this morning, and you've been thinking about it, you've been praying about it, God's Spirit has been hounding you about it, and you've heard who knows how much spiritual truth, Well, and you might even be asking, because I've talked to people like this, how do I become a Christian? How do I do it? Romans 10, 9 and 10 is one of the clearest, most explicit ways to do it. Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. In other words, you've got to be willing to, to bow the knee to Him. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. That's, that's embracing the truth of the gospel. Calling Him Lord, asking Him to save you of your sin, believing He's the resurrected Messiah, and that you can't be saved apart from Him, and you need to call Him into your life and bow the knee. If you do that, then you shall be saved. It's an awesome promise from God. And so Paul goes on after verses 9 and 10 in Romans, and then he goes on and asks these very basic practical questions. Well, if people get saved... Uh, by confessing Jesus as Lord and believing in His resurrection. In other words, people get saved through the gospel. People get saved only through the gospel. Then the prerequisite is they, prerequisite is they need to hear the gospel. And that's why Paul says, how shall they hear if no one has 
preached it to them. He uses the word preach. And how shall anybody preach to them if no one is sent? So Paul makes it clear. The gospel and evangelism, for it to legitimately take place, needs to be verbalized, it needs to be spoken, it needs to be preached, it needs to be proclaimed. Verbal, propositional truth from God. Those are the conditions. By the way, the reason that's so important is because if it's just, well, I want people just to see my good deeds and that was good enough. Well, not really. Because if all a person sees are my good deeds, they can't interpret that. Because people who aren't Christians can do good deeds. To this day, one of the nicest people I know is a friend of mine who is a Mormon. One of the kindest, most soft-spoken, servant-hearted people I know. So if it was strictly based on deeds, there's no difference between biblical Christianity. That's why it has to be a spoken message that God gave. And the reason that unbelievers can do good deeds on a practical level is because they've been made in the image of God. And that's called common grace. It doesn't earn them salvation. But they are really reflecting an image of God that they were created in His very image. And so that's why that is possible. The doctrine of common grace. The gospel is what sets that apart. Let's go on to number two. So after Paul reiterates the conditions of the gospel, he gives the content of the gospel. That's verses 3 and 4. So here it is. Here's Paul's definition. He said, and he promised, I'm going to make known to you the gospel. Here's the definition. Well, Paul, what is this definition of the gospel you promised in verse 1? It's in verse 3 and verse 4. Here it is. For I delivered to you what I also received. I already mentioned that. I delivered it to you. I was a steward because I got it from God. Trying to be faithful. We don't make up the gospel. It's not Paul's gospel. Books are being written now. Well, this is Paul's gospel. This is Jesus' gospel. It's a different gospel. No, it's not. Paul's gospel is Jesus' gospel. It's the same thing. Same with Peter and Apollos. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That is it. How, how unbelievably simple. That is the content of the gospel. What is the minimum amount that somebody needs to, an unbeliever needs to believe in in order to be saved? Theologians are, love to argue round and round in circles about that question all the time. What is the minimum? And then have debates about it. And then have big societies where 1,500 theologians all over the country come and commiserate and debate the issue of what's the minimum amount of information that an unbeliever needs to be told or believe in order to become a Christian. It's really simple. The minimum amount of information that an unbeliever needs to believe in order to be saved is the gospel. That's the answer. Because that's what Paul said right here. This is the gospel. Nothing more, nothing less. Now, uh, it needs to be spelled out. And, of course, Paul's just reminding them in a succinct fashion. He did spend weeks and weeks and months and months proclaiming and teaching the details of the gospel and expanding it so they clearly understood. So this is a distilled version of it. And it needs to be expounded and explained. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So let's look at the contents of the gospel. In other words, and this will help us. This, what do we need to share with unbelievers so that they can hear the truth about God, so that they can consider their sin, consider God, consider Jesus, embrace Him, and be saved? Well, at a minimum, you need to include all the components of the gospel that Paul delineates here. And here they are. So this will help us in practical evangelism. 
Uh, point number one at the beginning, verse three, four, I delivered to you as of first importance. First importance. What does that mean? Here's the priority. This is the priority in terms of chronology. This is the priority in terms of content of what an unbeliever needs to hear and believe in order to be saved. So there are priorities in terms of things that we share with unbelievers if our goal is to evangelize them. This is incredibly important. This is of first importance. This is the priority. This is the main thing you should be talking about. If you've got 20 minutes with an unbeliever, make sure you're camping out on this stuff here. Don't be camping out on other stuff that is not at the heart of the gospel that's a secondary issue or maybe is an issue that they want to talk about because they're more comfortable with that because they don't want to talk about the gospel because that makes them uncomfortable. This is of first importance. What's of first importance? What is the priority, Paul, in talking with unbelievers? Well, it's about Christ and his death. It is of first importance. So in other words, if you have an opportunity to share the gospel with an unbeliever, it's not talking. you're not spending all your time talking about evolution versus creation. That's, that is almost a, I, I don't know, almost a worthless conversation in terms of when you're talking to an unbeliever because they don't have the supernatural ability because they're not saved to even believe this divine revelation about creation and how it happened because God revealed that through Scripture. And if you get them to believe in, oh, okay, yeah, maybe I'll believe in creation, that doesn't save them. That's not the gospel. So don't be distracted by tangential issues. You can talk about those when it's pertinent or important or if it's a clarifying question and helps them. But in terms of the priority of evangelism, what the sinner needs most, it is right here. It is about Christ. It is about Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It really is that simple. I've said it once. I'll say it again. That's why I love it when Franklin Graham is on TV and he gets interviewed all the time whenever a tragedy happens or some political issue comes up. And it's um, and his dad was the same way by the... Uh, and they start CNN and all these TV shows, MSNBC, blah, blah, blah. And they ask Franklin, he's on a panel or whatever, and here's the question. What do you think about the earthquake? Or what do you think about the hurricane that just happened? And he just totally ignores the question. Uh, and I, uh, God loves you. And John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And if you admit you're a sinner, you embrace Jesus Christ, you believe in him, the scripture says that you'll have eternal life and immediate forgiveness for sin. For, well, Franklin, you didn't answer the question. That's all right. Let me keep going. Anyway, so that's... Franklin's got a one-track mind, and that's a good thing. Uh, and he's he's a preacher of the, the simple gospel, which Paul articulates here, and it is of first importance, and Franklin got that message. It is of first importance. That's the priority when we go out and share with people. And so uh, if you have an opportunity to share with people, start emphasizing uh, priority number one, which Paul says for I, of first importance is what? What I also received, that Christ died for our sins. What is the priority? It is Christ. It is Jesus. It is the Messiah. So that's what you begin talking about with unbelievers. You need to start talking about Christ. Paul uses a technical word for Jesus here, the Christ. It meant something. It is a loaded term. That includes the entire Old Testament commentary has invested that word Christ in what it means. The anointed one of God and all that that means. And that's what Paul explained to them when they were pagans. Let me tell you about the Christ. You worship the unknown God. You worship all kinds of idols. You worship that which you do not even know. Let me tell you who the true God is. He came down here in the form of the Christ that the Father sent. And then Paul proceeded to tell them all about Jesus that they needed to know. And they were fully informed that Jesus is God. He is eternal. He is the creator. He's one with the Father. He is to be worshipped. He is divine. He's the only way to heaven. He did not sin. He cannot sin. He's the only Savior. He conquered Satan. He came for a purpose. He died for a purpose. He died as the substitute of sin. So a sinner, an unbeliever, needs to know thoroughly who Jesus is. 
And that's what Paul means by the Christ. That's where the gospel starts. It starts with explaining to a person who Jesus is. I was invited to be a part of street evangelism about a month ago over up in Palo Alto. And they were having a Hare Krishna festival, which was very colorful and lots of music and lots of hubbub going on. And it was kind of fun. And we're mingling and talking to folks. And I did talk to, I talked to a Hindu apologist. He was more aggressive than I was. Imagine that. Um, and he was just going on and on, and I just let him talk. I was listening. I was asking him a bunch of questions, and he was telling me all about his religion and why I should believe it and why I should read his holy book and the Bhagavad Gita and how it will enlighten me. And it's only and oh, okay, thank you. Oh, by the way, it's seven ninety nine. Oh, I don't have any money, but anyway, um, I'll give you a free Bible. So we're talking about his religion, and he said some things that intrigued me. And finally, I just said, "So, what do you think about Jesus?" And I said, "Oh, we believe in Jesus, absolutely." All religions believe in Jesus. I was like, really? Oh, yes. All religions believe in Jesus. Uh, the, the Bhagavad Gita believes in Jesus. The Quran, Even the Bible. I was like, wow, okay. So uh, for the next 10, 15 minutes, I just talked about Jesus and see what he believed about Jesus. and got very specific. You believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus um, is... Do you believe he was crucified? Uh, yes, I think he was uh, Yeah, killed. Do you think he rose again from the dead according to the Scriptures? He didn't want to answer that. Do you believe that Jesus is Almighty God, one with the Father? He did not believe that. Do you believe that Jesus is eternal and uncreated? He didn't believe that. Do you believe that Jesus is the only judge of every soul as every person that dies will be confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ and He's the only one who decides who goes to heaven and who's hell? He did not believe that. And, so, and then I quoted several passages out of Scripture about things Jesus said about Himself. Then it became very clear to Him, Oh, you seem to know a lot about the Bible. That's what He told me. Um, he was not offended. As a matter of fact, he said, "We," because I had to go, and he said, oh, we must have coffee. So uh, we exchanged emails, and hopefully we're going to have coffee. But the point was, I couldn't just let him off at the surface level when he said, oh, I believe in Jesus, because that's what we do a lot of times. You got your barber cutting your hair, and the, oh, I believe in Jesus. Okay, whoo, good, I don't have to share the gospel with that person. That's really what's going on. When you start asking them, impressing them about their views of Jesus, then you find out, uh-oh, Houston. We have a problem. Paul says, the Christ, the Christ, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one according to the Scriptures. He goes on two times according to the Scriptures. It has to not just be any Jesus, and Jesus made in the image of some false religion or uh, the human mind or the historical Jesus that people can never seem to find, like Time Magazine and Newsweek Magazine, once a year at Christmas or at Easter. It is the Jesus of the Bible, according to the Scriptures. That's why Paul says, according to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures. Scripture is very clear about who Jesus is. He is the eternal, uncreated, almighty God-man, judge and Savior of the earth that every human soul needs to contend with in this life and in the next. That Jesus. So we need to know who Jesus is. It's the heart of the Gospel. And, Peter, and then Paul goes on. Not only do we need to know who Jesus is, we also need to know what Jesus did. And when we emphasize an evangelistic conversation about Jesus with people, we can't get sidetracked about things. It's not about His life. It's not about His miracles. It's not about things that He did. It's not about things we don't know that He did. It's not about things maybe suggested in the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Hebrews or the lost book of Judas or the questionable so-called birth that He had. What do we talk about primarily? What is of first importance? It is that Christ died. We talk about the meaning of His death. 
The one who started our religion, Christianity, was Jesus Christ. The most significant event about Jesus Christ who started our religion, Christianity, was not his life, was not his birth. It was his death. That's what Paul emphasizes. That's, that is absolutely intriguing and absolutely unique. Because there's no other religion on planet Earth that exists for that reason. When you think about Islam, the largest religion in the world, who started it? Well, Muhammad. When did he start it? Uh, around 600 A.D. And when the point that is emphasized about Muhammad, who started the religion of Islam, it is not about his death. As a matter of fact, his death is quite obscure. They're not quite sure what happened. Died in his 60s, died in his home with one of his 13 wives. Not quite sure how he died, maybe of heart failure, maybe of old age. We're not quite sure. There's not a lot of information about it. And so really, Muhammad's death is utterly insignificant. It means nothing. If you're a practitioner of Islam, you don't have to believe anything about the death of Muhammad. You don't have to commit to it. There's nothing it does that's efficacious for you or what you think or for your soul at all. You can totally ignore the death of Muhammad. Same thing with Buddhism and the Buddha. And when he died, even more obscure. They don't even know when he was born, where he lived. Going off these, le- they call it legend. According to legend, according to legend, according to legend, according to, that's, if you read and study Buddha, that's what you find out about Buddha. According to legend, we're not quite sure. There are several different sources and there are discrepancies. We don't even know where he was born, where he did his uh, living and grew up. It's all a mystery. Let alone his death that means absolutely nothing. There's no meaning to his death. Or one of the largest religions in America started by Joseph Smith, which would be Mormonism. He is their prophet. He is called their prophet. He's esteemed as the great prophet, Joseph Smith. It's his teachings that they emphasize. It's his life they emphasize, not his death. His death is meaningless. As a matter of fact, the death of Joseph Smith is embarrassing. He died as a criminal, arrested by the the governor of that state in Illinois, and was thrown in prison with his brother, and he died, a criminal trying to escape from prison, shooting uh, state federal officials. Totally unexpected. His death was totally unexpected. Didn't happen the way it was supposed to be. It happened way prematurely. Died in his 30s. There was no meaning to his death. The meaning of his death doesn't do anything for those who follow him or his religion or Mormonism. It's not efficacious. It wasn't prophesied in Scripture anywhere. That's another thing. Nowhere was Muhammad's death ever prophesied. No holy scriptures ever gave any significance to it whatsoever. The same thing with Buddha. His death was never prophesied anywhere. Nobody ever wrote about it before it ever happened. Buddha didn't go around and make prophecies regarding his death, when it was going to happen, who was going to do it, why it was significant, why it was uh, needed to be embraced. Nothing like that about his death. And the same thing with Joseph Smith. And you can go ahead and pick every religious leader in the world with respect to their religion. Their death was meaningless. And just the exact opposite is true of Christianity. The most important thing about Christianity is Jesus. And the most important thing about the person of Jesus in terms of what he did that needs to be communicated is his death and the meaning of his death. Scripture is clear about it. Paul is clear about it here. Of first importance is that Christ died. So what do I talk about uh, when I'm talking to an unbeliever? You talk about Jesus. You tell them thoroughly who he is and then you immediately get to the fact that he died and you don't just say he died on a cross that's a fact they need to understand the implications not just the fact of his death which is true but they understand here it is the meaning of his death and that was the the glaring problem with uh, the movie that Mel Gibson made on the life of Christ it left the meaning it showed the fact of his death But the meaning was never interpreted. You can't really interpret it in a movie. 
unless the somebody gets on there and says audibly. And here's the meaning of his death, which didn't happen. The meaning of his death is only given in Scripture. That's the only place you're going to find it, in divine revelation of the Bible. So the meaning of so Christ's death, it is a priority. It is the most significant thing they need to understand. We need to uh, invest it with meaning and make it applicable and relevant to their life using Scripture to explain the meaning of their life, why it matters to them, how they can apply it to their life, and why it makes Jesus Christ stand out. His death is the most significant thing, and it is inextricably linked to His resurrection. His death and his resurrection. Which one's more important? His death or resurrection? Well, they go together. They're equally important. Well, what's more important? His life, his death, or his resurrection? Well, they all go together. You can't separate Christ. But regarding the significance and the uniqueness of his death and how it is important, it is at the heart of the gospel, the meaning of Jesus' death, you ask the question, why did Jesus die? That's an intriguing question to ask people to see what they're thinking. It's a diagnostic. Oh, I believe in Jesus. Oh, you do? I mean, I grew up as a Catholic for 18, 19 years. I would have said at one point while I was a Catholic, maybe when I was in seventh grade, uh, you're Catholic, yes. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you believe, what do you believe about Jesus? Well, I believe he died on the cross. Now, the problem was when I was in seventh grade and also in twelfth grade at a Catholic school, if you were to ask me why Jesus died, I believe he died on the cross. If you asked me why did he die on the cross, I, I didn't know. I didn't, I'd never read the Bible. I didn't know why he died. And that's actually the most important thing about his death. I need to know. That's why Paul says, Jesus died according to the Scriptures. In other words, he's distilling it down. He's saying, I don't have time to go over this, but the Old Testament Scriptures define very specifically the meaning of Christ's death and what makes it efficacious if you embrace that reality. And this is basic. Why did Jesus die? Some people give simplistic answers. Oh, he died um, for the forgiveness of sin. That's a great answer. That's actually one of the answers. But here are answers that are actually found in the Old Testament according to the Scriptures. I'm just doing what Paul said. According to the Scriptures. Christ died according to the Scripture. Okay, what does the Old Testament Scripture say about the death of Christ and the meaning of his death? Why did Jesus die? According to the Old Testament, here is why Jesus died. He had died to appease the Father's wrath. In other words, before you were saved, before I was saved, God was angry at us. Really? Yeah. That's what Scripture says. As a matter of fact, not only was God angry at us, if you're not a Christian, if you're an unbeliever, you are angry at God. We are born children of wrath. Your average unbeliever, they don't want to believe that. I'm not angry at God. Actually, I believe in God. Let me tell you about No, I'm talking about the real God, the only God, the scriptural God. There is enmity between you and him. If you don't know Jesus, he's mad at you and you are mad at him. And God's wrath is literally pouring down upon you according to Jesus' own words in the Gospel of John, John chapter 3 at the end of the chapter. The wrath of God abides on them. Romans said it very clearly. Romans 1.18, the Apostle Paul said that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven on all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. For those who are not saved, present tense, God's wrath is continually pressing down on unbelievers. God's wrath. What is the greatest need that a sinner has? He needs to be alleviated and set free from the wrath of the Father. What did Jesus do when He died on the cross? He rescued us from the wrath of His Father. That's what He did. That is profound when you think about it. Jesus saved us from His Father. And in some respects, Jesus saved us from himself because John 5 says the only judge at the end of the age is Jesus Christ himself. And the only way that 
the wrath of God can be assuaged or appeased or eliminated or eradicated is through the shedding of blood, through death. That's it. And that's why Jesus' death is the ultimate satisfaction. The almighty, infinite God who became a man, who became a human, who became a real human so that he could be a satisfactory 100% substitute on our behalf as humans. And he absorbed all the infinite, holy wrath of God in his body on the cross for every sinner who would trust in him. Why did Jesus die? He died to save us from the wrath of the Father. And he did. That's what he meant when he said, it is finished. It is finished. I've accomplished that goal. Why did Jesus die? To appease us of the Father's wrath. And then these others, I'm just going to list these off because they're true. Jesus died. Why did he die? To be a substitute for sinners. He died to rescue us from hell. He died to set us free from Satan. He died to set us free from the world. He died to secure our forgiveness. He died to bring about reconciliation so we could be friends with God. He died for our justification. That's a legal declaration before God so that we can have good standing. He died for our sanctification to set us apart and make us holy. He died to redeem us to set us free from the fact that we were slaves in terms of our sin. He's, he died to give us eternal life, which is the quality and the quantity of eternal perfect life in the sphere of knowing God. He died to free us from guilt. He died to empower us in this life with the indwelling Holy Spirit. He died to adopt us into His family to be His children. He died because He loved us. He died that He might fulfill the law and its requirement of our sin. He died so that we might become like Him. He died so that we might serve Him now and for eternity. He died that we might worship Him in this life and forevermore. Amen? What is the meaning of Jesus' death? Why did He die? That is the fully orbed answer according to the Scriptures. The most important thing a sinner needs to know is the meaning of Jesus' death. Thank you, the Apostle Paul. For I delivered unto you as of first importance. That is the priority. Who is Jesus that he died, and why he died. And he died according to the Scriptures, as I just shared. And then he goes on, number four, other key components of the Gospel. Jesus died, and also he was buried. We need to know that. In other words, his death was real. He wasn't a phantom. He, wasn't, he didn't get off the cross mysteriously somehow, as some people want to believe or say. He escaped just before the crucifixion, or the apostles pulled him off before he died. And they hid him away. He actually never died. No, he was buried. That tomb was sealed. That is a fact. There were witnesses. It's undeniable. He was truly dead. He was dead for three days. And then he was buried. That sealed the fact legally that he was in fact dead. Which makes his, makes his resurrection all the more profound. He came back to life from the dead. Of someone who was actually in a tomb in a grave for three days that was sealed by the legal authorities. And there were all kinds of witnesses to it. So his death was a fact which enhances the glory of the resurrection. What else did Jesus do? Well, he was raised on the third day. He rose again from the dead. Resurrection. So here's Paul's point. How in the world can you have people in the Corinthian church who deny resurrection as a reality when you say you believe in the gospel and at the heart of the gospel is the fact that Jesus rose from the dead? And his promise and the implication was, because I live, you also shall live. And so the whole point of becoming a Christian and following Christ is to be glorified someday with a resurrection body after the pattern of Christ's resurrection body. And Jesus was raised from the dead. That's at the heart of the gospel, and that's what we need to, we need to preach the resurrection. You go through the book of Acts, that's what Paul preached, that's what Peter preached, that's what John preached, that's what the apostles preached. It was the resurrection. They were focused. He preached the life of Christ, his meaningful death, his powerful resurrection. 
That is the gospel. Jesus was raised. By the way, the verb tense is very specific in verse 4. Jesus, passive tense. In other words, he was raised by someone else. He was raised by the Father is the point of emphasis there. The Father raised Jesus, although Jesus did say he would raise himself from the dead in the Gospel of John at least two times. And the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. But here the point of emphasis is that the Father raised him from the dead, and it's in the perfect tense, meaning the results go on forever. He continues to be risen from the dead. He lives as the glorious risen Savior in heaven for all eternity. Resurrection is forever. That's the point. It is for, it is for eternity. It goes on. He's the living Lord of His church. That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And again, emphasizing that Jesus' death was no surprise. He wasn't cut off guard. Why did Jesus die? Well, because He was cut off guard and everybody abandoned Him. He didn't know why all His apostles scattered everywhere. And, um he didn't know Judas was going to betray him, and so his plans were thwarted, and so everything got messed up, and so he was a victim. That's why he died. No, he wasn't a victim. It was all planned according to Scripture. According to Scripture, it was planned. According to Scripture means it was literally scripted. God planned the death of Christ. God planned the resurrection of Christ. Jesus planned his own death. Did you know that? Jesus planned his own death ahead of time. Jesus planned his own death. He even planned the very day that he would die. He died on the Passover, one of the greatest feasts in the Old Testament. That was not a coincidence. That was planned. The Passover feast was when you took an innocent lamb that did nothing to anybody and you slaughtered it, you killed it, you shed its blood on behalf of others so that that shed blood would appease a holy God. And Jesus died on that very feast as the Lamb of God. Jesus planned his own death. He, he knew it ahead of time. At the beginning of his ministry, he predicted his own death. You destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up again. That's one of the first things he ever said publicly in his ministry, and it's in John chapter 2, three and a half years before he ever died. Ultimately, Jesus planned his own death in eternity past with God the Father and the Holy Spirit because Peter and Book of Revelation say that he is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus' death was no mistake. It was the ultimate plan and planned for all eternity. And it was according to the Scriptures. It was totally scripted. It went exactly according to the way God had planned. Absolutely amazing. In terms of the details of Jesus' death and all of its sig significance, it was planned ahead of time. Just by way of reminder, here are some amazing things from Scripture regarding Jesus' death and it went according to the Scriptures. His death was planned in eternity past. I already said that. Uh, the purpose of his death was predicted in Genesis 3. The year of his death was predicted in Daniel chapter 9. The year of his death was pro prophesied 500 years before in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, the city and jurisdiction of his death was uh, predicted in Zechariah chapter 12. The method of his death, crucifixion, which hadn't even been invented yet, was predicted 1,000 years before in Psalm 22. The duration of his death was predicted in the Old Testament in terms of uh, three days, Jonah chapter 1, and also the fact that he would come back again from the dead, Psalm 16, verse 10. The company of his death was predicted in Isaiah 53. He would die with sinners. The witnesses of his death was predicted in Psalm 22. That it would be a public spectacle. The instigation of his death was predicted in Zechariah that it would be done by one of his friends. It was Judas. The role of Satan was predicted regarding his death in Genesis chapter 3. The day of his death, Passover, was predicted in Exodus chapter 12, 1,400 years before Christ was ever born. The details of his death are given in Isaiah 22 and Isaiah 53. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. The meaning of his death, Isaiah 53, the wrath of the Father. And then finally, the attitude of his death, clearly given in Isaiah 53, that he would be silent as a lamb goes to the slaughter. Meaning he, with humility 
and submission to the plan of Almighty God, the only way to rescue sinners was his attitude. That was predicted almost 800 years before he died. Absolutely amazing. The death of Christ is the greatest deed that has ever been done in the history of the universe. It is also the greatest, the worst deed that's ever been done in the history of the universe. Talk about a profound irony. And God did all that purposely so that he might rescue sinners and save them from their sin. That is good news. That's available to anybody today who's a sinner, no matter what sins they've committed, no matter how horrible, heinous, or uh, the kind of drowning in guilt. This is the only message and good news that can set them free. A living Savior with this powerful message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. With that, let's go ahead and pray and, and thank the Father for His blessed and beloved Son, Jesus Christ, who willingly came and gave His life as a sacrifice for sinners. And again, if you're here today and you don't, you don't know Jesus Christ personally, I would, again, uh, plead with you as, as the author in Hebrews did when he explained the meaning of Jesus' ministry and Jesus' death. And after he gave them needed information, the author of Hebrews said, Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. And that's what I will pray for you. Father, we thank you for, again, our time to gather with the saints in the local church, to have fellowship with your body, to praise you through song, and many other ways. And we thank you for your goodness and ongoing provision for us. We thank you for the treasure of your word, where we, we can very clearly learn about who Jesus is and why you sent him, why he came, uh, the meaning of his death. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for offering your life so that sinners might be saved. I thank you and all of us who, who know you. Thank you for the ongoing grace that comes with that salvation in you and you alone. And we do pray for those that don't know you yet, Lord, whether they're uh, in our midst, whether they are close family and relatives that we have, that we long to see saved, colleagues at work, neighbors. God, we continue to plead with you that the Holy Spirit will continue to do his job of convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment, complemented by them hearing the gospel so that they might be saved. We just entrust that gracious work to you. We thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.